0: Okay, so last time we saw the seventh angel sound in Revelation eleven fifteen, And when the seventh angel sounded, the hallelujah chorus broke out. And the kingdom was proclaimed. The kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ is now. And then we got this sort of interlude before we went on to the next judgment. Because when the seventh angel sounds... Within the judgment of the seventh angel, we're going to get the seven bowl judgments. But as we got with the seventh seal and before the seven trumpets, and we got an interlude and some explanation, we, we began to get the explanation. And the first thing we got was this historical overview we got this drama of a woman bearing a child and a dragon falling and his, and his third of his angels coming down and so forth. And basically it was the historical overview of the battle of Satan versus God. In Act 1, Satan tries to ascend to the Most High and become like God and he's cast out. But he still has access to heaven. So he's deposed but still with access. This is a theme that will continue on. And a third of the angels fall with him. And the next scene in Act 2, there's the dragon trying to eat the child that's being born by the woman, who's Israel. And of course, he fails even though he kills the Messiah. The Messiah is resurrected and ascends back to God. And so he fails in Act 2. So he fails in Act 1 and he fails in Act 2. And then in Act 3, we're in the tribulation and the dragon's trying to eat the woman. He's trying to eat Israel. He's trying to destroy Israel. In each case, it seems that what's going on is Satan believes if he can destroy Israel, he can keep King David, the Davidic line, let's say, from ascending to the throne and taking his place. This whole thing is, who has the right to reign? That's the overarching question in all of human history and even angelic history. Who has the right to reign? And... Revelation is telling us who has the right to reign is God. Who has the right to reign on earth is Jesus who overcame. And who has the right to reign on earth is the overcomers that he invites to share his throne with him. And this overarching message to us in Revelation, which is a very simple book, with a simple message, if we approach it from the standpoint of what does it have to tell us to do, what's it telling us to do, very simple. If we approach Revelation from the standpoint of, asking what is going to happen, then it's incomprehensible. Because it doesn't really tell us what's going to happen. It tells us a few things that are going to happen. But the overriding message to us is, be an overcomer. Be a great witness and not fear death, any kind of death. And then you too are an overcomer, just like Jesus is an overcomer. And in doing so, you're part of this grand drama of supplanting Satan from being the ruler of this world which apparently was his first job and he said that's not good enough I want to be ruler of everything and then what's going to happen is he's going to be end up being ruler of nothing so we saw that last week and then we saw Satan cast out of heaven because even though he has been thrown down he has continued to have access to heaven and now Satan is thrown out of heaven and he comes to the earth having great wrath isn't that interesting Because Satan's whole focus is to deceive people, but his purpose is to destroy us. Because we are his competition. We are who God has appointed to take his place. And he promises people everything and gives them nothing. He promises them life and gives them death. He promises them benefit and reward. gives them corruption. And, and loss. And when he gets thrown out of heaven, comes to earth, he gets even more passionate about destruction. Furthermore, we saw the rise of the beast last week. And we saw this creature come up out of the sea. And this creature was like the animals that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we saw a lion, which is Babylon. And that was followed by a bear, which is Persia. Each individual creatures, which was followed by a leopard, which is Greece, lightning fast conquering, which was followed by this monster that was like nothing other with these jaws of iron that just crushed stuff, which is Rome. These are the same four kingdoms we had seen in Daniel chapter 2 with the statue. The head of gold was Babylon. The breast of silver was Persia. The stomach of bronze was Greece and the legs of partly iron, partly clay, Rome, an Eastern and Western Roman Empire. So we saw these things in Daniel as four different things, but now when the beast comes up in Revelation, it's more like the statue, except instead of metals, it's animals. It has a head of like a lion, and a, a body like partly like a bear, and, and then partly like a leopard, and this this is the beast. And the beast is also uh, is seven heads and ten horns. So we have, which is represents Rome. So we've got this king of Rome, this Roman emperor, who has all the characteristics of Babylon. it's, it's got the the majesty and authority of Babylon. Through Daniel, God told uh, Nebuchadnezzar, "You're king of kings. You're greater than every king. You're like the gold kingdom. M- massive authority. The beast has it." It's got the bureaucracy and the vast expansion of government that Persia had. It's got the lightning-fast ability to act that Greece had, and the brute power and force of Rome, all in one. And the last thing we saw last week was the beast had as a number. The number means more than this, but it's important to note that the number is the number of a man because everything we learn about the beast, you couldn't really tell for sure, if it's a man, but it will be. It'll be a man. However, the beast in Revelation eleven seven came out of the bottomless pit. We're going to see in future lessons that the beast is said to be him who was and is not and is to come. And we saw last week we have an unholy trinity. We've got the dragon, the dragon man, and the false prophet, just like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we got the dragon, the dragon man, and the false prophet. And this beast ascends out of the bottomless pit. And he was and is not and is to come. It's really fascinating. I asked myself, what is that? One thought I came up with is it might be one of those mighty men of old talked about in Genesis. You know where the angels interacted with women and created these mighty men? And then in Jude, it tells us that these angels left their proper domain and were put in the bottomless pit because they had broken the rules. I wonder if these titan people, if these kind of mighty people were put in the bottomless pit. One of them's let out, sort of like Elijah and Enoch or Moses and Elijah, whichever it is, the two witnesses. Wouldn't that be interesting? So you would have this was, is not because they're in the bottomless pit and then let out to be again. And it's a man and a demon partly angelic. That would be an interesting outcome. I don't want to be around that person. (laughs) But that could be what's going on. We saw in Revelation 13 that the beast derives power from Satan. We'll see in Revelation 16 demons come out of the mouth of the beast. So there's a very direct demonic influence that's going on with the beast. But one of the big questions that surrounds this beast is where does he come from? course, we know he comes from the bottomless pit. So there's definitely a demonic influence there. Uh, Dr. Anderson has an interesting observation from Micah. Let's just turn there real quick. Micah 5.5. 5. Micah 5.5 5 says, and this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. Dr. Anderson believes that this verse is telling us the beast will be an Assyrian. Assyria is an ancient empire that mainly constitutes modern Iraq. And some parts of Iran and some other places around uh, in the vicinity it's mainly modern Iraq. If you want to look from the perspective of could this be on the verge, could we be on the verge of these things happening, I would tell you yes. Of course, the people in 70 AD when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem could have looked at that and said this is on the verge of happening too. So this certainly is always imminent. But today we have the rise of Iraq, we have the rise of ISIS, we have the rise of Islam. Islam has a very deliberate strategy to take over the world. We will see that one of the things that the martyrs have happened to them is they're beheaded. A lot of people speculated when I was younger about why I would beheading every comeback Well, here it is. It's back. We also see the rise of technology. They already have the ability to put a chip in your hand, so you can just wave it under the wand at the grocery store and buy and sell. You can easily see a government coming in and saying, you know, all of our drug problems come about because of cash. So we're going to eliminate cash so we can track all this activity because your safety is at stake. Peace and safety, they say and then destruction will come. So, it, yes, we absolutely could see these things happening. Uh, of course, when they saw World War II happen and the rise of Hitler, and Hitler had a very definitive program to have a thousand-year reign and to have world domination, uh, people looked at that and said, yeah, maybe this is it, and for good reason. So just because it looks like it could be happening doesn't mean it's happening, but it might. The Bible uses the term birth pangs. All creation groans and wants redemption. And birth pangs, as most of you know, I think, get closer and closer together and then the birth comes. Get more and more severe. So we don't know if we're in a birth pang or whether we're on the verge. What we do know is that the outcome is certain. So today, we'll look at chapter 14... And then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. Now, I'm going to start here with an admission that the last time we saw harps, and I did Revelation five eight. I said, there's absolutely no place in the Bible where people are sitting around mindlessly playing harps. And this is the only place in Revelation where there's a harp. I was wrong. It was the only place in Revelation where the word harp appears, but I did not put in my search engine harps and harpists. And so my mistake, there are actually harps and harpists, and here they are. And literally what this says is, I heard the sound of harpists harping their harps is actually is actually what the Greek word says. And so I was wrong. I'm sorry I missed that. However, the point remains because they're singing a song. So every place we will see harps, it's an accompaniment to music. It's not mindless staring off into space and strumming, which is the Greek notion. So I missed that. But we have these harpists, and what are they doing? Well, we start here with a lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. Now, we saw the 144,000 in Revelation 7 that were chosen, 12,000 from each tribe. And here they are now standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is, in the Old Testament, the place of the city of David. You can go to Israel today and go to Jerusalem, and they've rediscovered the city of David, and it's just kind of across the street from the Temple Mount. So that's Mount Zion, and it's a symbol of Jewish authority. It's a symbol of Jewish kingship. So here is the Lamb on Mount Zion with the 144,000. And while they're there, they hear the sounds of this choir, this, this accompanied choir, the orchestra and music chorale singing. And what they're doing is they're singing a new song before the throne. So I'm not sure exactly how this works, whether they're on the mount and heaven is, what, serenading them, I guess, or whether they are on the mount ascending. It it doesn't really tell us that. But what it does tell us is this new song that's being sung is a song that only these 144,000 can learn. So I tried to think about, you know, what is that like? What is a song that only applies to certain people? And I thought of, you know, walk-up songs. You go to a baseball game, they announce a certain batter, and they play just a song, a walk-up song for that batter. Or if the closer comes out, they play a song for just that person. I thought of some famous people from my generation, back when TV was something everybody watched. There were three channels, and we all watched kind of the same things. And these uh, figures would have uh, theme songs. So if you hear, Moon, river, wider than a mile. You immediately know that's Andy Williams. That's his song. Or if you hear everybody loves somebody sometime. Nobody sings that song but Dean Martin. That's his song. When his show's over he sings that song and you know oh that's the theme song. Today we have something like that. It's not sung but we have hail to the chief. You know that song's only for the president and that's his walk-up song. Maybe it's something like that when you hear that song, you know, oh, there's the 144,000 walking up. Or there, there's the 144,000 arriving. Or maybe it's something that they just share with each other. But in any event, there's special recognition is what all those songs associate with. Maybe in heaven there'll be music playing all the time. We're going to get some instance of this where I think there's a little hint that it might be that you walk up to somebody and they just break out in song. The sun will come out tomorrow. You know, just that, that may be what's going on. And it may be everywhere these guys go, you kind of hear this music, this background music. You know, movies are like that, right? The minute you hear dum, 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 you know who's about to come on the scene, right? You know that. Or jaws, bomb, bomb. Uh oh, you know who's uh, you know who's close by, bomb, 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 bomb. Bom. Okay, well maybe that's the way life's going to be. Then I I, I kind of think it will be. It's going to be like a like music going along. Uh, we'll be it be really interesting to see what your walk up song would be. <laughs> da 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 da, 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 da. <laughs> I was thinking, dun 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 dun, Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that too. So these are the ones that are not defiled with women for their virgins. Now, there's two ways not to be defiled with women. One is to be married to one woman and not to experience sexual immorality, because according to Hebrews 13, the marriage bed is undefiled. But the other way is just to be a virgin. So these guys are that way, apparently. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And I think this is kind of the key thing. This 144,000, they are an example of what God wants us to do. He wants us to follow Him and not the world system all the time. This is what being a faithful witness looks like. And these were redeemed from among men. This word redeemed just means to buy. When Jesus says, I sent them in to go buy some food, same word. Or buy from me gold refined in the fire, we saw in Revelation 3, same word. They're purchased from among men. And probably from among Israel because it says these were redeemed from among men being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. First fruits is just the first of something. In the Old Testament, it was the first part of the harvest. There was a lot that's surrounding the first part of the harvest because God wanted people to take the first part of their harvest and give from that. And be generous with that. Because if you can be generous with the first part, you can be generous with the rest of it. And of course, as we've experienced, if you can't give, then the money's going to own you, or your possessions are going to own you. You can either have your possessions work for you, or you can work for your possessions. And the, one of the key things to keep your possessions from owning you is to give. Also, first fruits is just first of other things. The Holy Spirit's called first fruit, it's a first installment on this new life that God has given us. Jesus is called the first fruit because he was the first one to be resurrected. And Paul calls his first converts in an area first fruits. So these are first of some kind. Perhaps they're the first ones to become redeemed believers in this tribulation period. That could be it. Perhaps they're the first ones in Israel to really get it and start being faithful witnesses. Don't know what that is exactly, but we do know that being someone who follows the Lamb wherever he goes, and that, and then this next verse, and then their mouth was found no deceit, for they're without fault before the throne of God. This is a good thing. And of course, you know that when we're justified, we're without fault before the throne of God from the standpoint of being in his family just because of Jesus. So that's not at issue. But when judgment comes, and we're going to see this, when, when, when judgment comes, it is our works that are evaluated. And why there are they evaluated? To see what our rewards are. And only the overcomers get to reign, which in the Scripture is the ultimate reward. To reign and rule in intimate fellowship with Christ over the entire earth. And not just Christ, but also all the other overcomers. That's the main thing that we're going for. It's really hard for us to fathom, but that is the thing that God says, look, look, you can't get any more fulfillment than this. And the way to get there is be a faithful witness in what I give you to do in this life. So then verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. We're still in this interlude between seventh trumpet blowing and the bowls starting to be poured out. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, the gospel. Now here's the gospel, the everlasting gospel. Let's just dwell on this for a second. This is an angel flying. And the angel has, like one of those old... uh, you know, trucks that has the speakers at the top that go through the... Okay, it's, he's, the angel is broadcasting to the whole world the everlasting gospel. Okay, you get that? This is not Billy Graham, it's not radio, it's an angel broadcasting and preaching to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And here's the everlasting gospel. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. That's the everlasting gospel. Now this would be confusing to most of us. Because if we had someone come today and say, I'm going to share the gospel. Here's the gospel. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. We would all say what? Well, that's nice. Thank you for that. But you left some things out. You left out a lot of historical information. You left out the most important thing, which is Jesus. Because you got to believe on Jesus. And that's not here in this everlasting gospel. So how do we unpack this? How do we understand this? Well, first let's look at this phrase, everlasting gospel. And the word everlasting probably would be better translated, the gospel of the age. This is the word ionios. The, the phrase here is Ionios Uengelion. Ionios Euangelion. Ionios often translated eternal, like eternal life, Ionios. But Jung's translation, which is kind of like the Yoda translation, but I like it a lot because he just takes a phrase out of Greek and doesn't rearrange it to make it sound like English. So it's a lot of, you know, old am I, you know, sort of thing. He always translates it something like to the age. Which is, I think, a better translation. I'll show you a couple of things that illustrate that. Romans 16.25 says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began. Since the world, Ionios. Since the age of the world. It's just a time period. Another place that kind of illustrates it is 2 Timothy 1.9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Before this age started. Before this age. Aionios is just age. We're going to see in a minute an instance where aionios, I think, does mean eternity and forever. But most of the time, it's better to think of it as just an age. So the gospel of this age makes a little more sense because in this age, do we need to know that Jesus is real? We do not. Why? Because we saw the people see this judgment and they say, who can escape the wrath of the Lamb? The whole thing about is Jesus real or not is out the window. That's not a question anymore. And you know, this is always the case. God always asks us to believe Him By grace through faith. That's always been the case. But the historicity of Jesus is an important part for part of the age. But, you know, that wasn't even part of it in the Old Testament because there was no historicity of Jesus. There was the promise of the coming Messiah. And so here what we're saying is, look, you got the world falling down around you. Believe what's happening and worship God because He's the one that made all this. And it's interesting, he says, the sea and the springs of water. What has happened to the sea and the springs of water? What? They're yeah, well, they're, yeah, they're turned to turned bitter. The waters have turned to bitter and the seas turned to blood. So they're, they're actually pretty important at this point in time. People are noticing it. So fear God, give glory to him for the hour of judgment has come. Worship him. This is the gospel of age. God always just asks people to meet him where he is. Jesus said, look, if you, don't, if you don't think what I told you is credible, then just believe me because of the miracles I did. That would have been good enough. Just, just respond to what you have. That's all I'm asking you to do. That's it's also interesting that preach the gospel is the phrase, the which is sort of like preach the preaching, or good news the good newsing, or share the sharing. Because Evangelion just means good news good newsy. And so what we're doing is good newsing the good news. We're we're sharing the good news. And gospel is not a limited phrase that means this certain part of conversion. It's the good news who Jesus is, who God is, and how He's going to redeem people in the world. It's the whole ball of wax. And we see it here being proclaimed. Now there's another thing here. We know it's proclaimed that the gospel must spread through the earth. And sometimes you'll hear people say it's up to us to do this and once we get done with it, then Jesus will come back. Well, Jesus did ask us to go and share with the earth. He did say the harvest is ripe, so go because the laborers are few. We're going to see a different kind of harvest here in just a minute. And so it is our job to go and share, but it's not on us to get this done. God can use a rock or a jackass if He needs to, and here He's going to use an angel just to make sure that everybody's covered. And He's going to share the gospel to every nation and every person. In verse eight, and another angel followed, saying, "Babylon is fallen, fallen, that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication." Now we're going to get into this much more when we get to chapter seventeen. But Babylon here is a city, and I'm going to take the position that it represents not just a city, although any kingdom always has a key city. Rome, was Rome an empire or a city? Yes, right. Okay, so I imagine that this is going to be both, but I think what we're talking about here is this kingdom of man, this Daniel 2 statue, and it's called Babylon because Babylon is the superior authority, it's the head. And now we have it all wrapped into one. It's just not one followed by another, followed by another. It's now all in one. And the kingdoms of this world have been overcome by the kingdom of the Lord and of His Christ. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, you've got this statue, and then a rock made without hands comes and breaks the statue and then fills the whole earth. That part's what's happening now. The rock is on its way rolling to knock down this, that statue. And Babylon has fallen. So this is the point where the rock hits the statue and it starts to crumble. You know in those epic movies when the computer graphics kicks in and something comes in and, and the, the, the giant structure starts to blow up and fall? That's what's happening here. Babylon has fallen, that great city. Because she's made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of the fornication. We'll see a little more about that in a minute. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or is on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of indignation. So when you take that drink of the world and say, I'm taking the cup of Babylon, you get two things when you get that. I will take the cup of the world. It looks good to me. I will drink of the cup of the world. You get two things when you take that big drink. You get the wrath of the world, and you get the wrath of God. What a deal. It's a double bonus of wrath. And this is nothing different than what we're told all through the New Testament epistles. Sin is death. The reward of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And Paul's point is, you can have all the death you want, but since you've been delivered from it, why don't you live apart from it? Instead, it's a better deal. Well, that's continuing on here. It's just more intense. Not only that, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of God. So if someone takes to the mark of the beast, part of the indignation and wrath they get is to be tormented with fire and brimstone. Where? In the center of the earth? Is that what it says? No. Where? In hell? Is that what it says? It doesn't say that. It says, in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Now, let me just skip over real quick to Revelation 22, 14 here. Because when we get to the new city and the new heaven and the new earth, all things are made new. It says, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So, some people get to go in the city. As a matter of fact, we're going to see the kings of the nations bring their glory into the city. But, outside the city, in the new earth, are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Living outside the city, but don't get to go in the city, in the new earth. I don't know who that is, but it could be that it's the people who took the mark of The beast. And they're living in the new earth. And living in the presence of the light of the Lamb that's so bright you don't even need the sun might be the lake of fire for them. And that might be the wrath of indignation in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. It could be something else. But what's for sure is when those guys under the altar say, How long are you going to wait before you avenge our deaths? And God says, just hang on a little longer. What is for sure is that's going to take place. There is a consequence for injustice. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends, Ionios, Ionios, to the age of the age. When you see forever and ever to the age of the age, I think then, you're pretty confident, means forever. It doesn't show up that often. Any other time, it means to the age, and you've got to think, what age are we talking about here? Which age? When you see to the age of the age, I think you're talking about all future ages. And in this case, the torment is going to go for all future ages. That has been of late a question that people have asked. And in this particular instance, for these people, it's clear. Now, verse 12, here's the patience of the saints, or the perseverance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works follow them. So here's the perseverance of the saints. Don't fear death. Be faithful unto death. And in fact, in this particular case, death is now an extra bonus. In the early church, they had a problem. People were trying to get arrested and thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by the animals. They understood this. They knew that if you died faithfully, you would get the max reward. That This teaching wasn't diluted at that point in time. It's since been kind of muddled up. And the church leaders had to go to people and say, "No, No, 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 that's not the way this works. You're not supposed to try to get killed... You're supposed to live faithfully. And if that happens to you, it's okay. But to live is Christ. To die is gain. So the, the dying parts, God will choose us. But we're supposed to live. Oh, okay. Well, that's going to be the case here. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And here, special benefit if you die in this era for your faith. Be a great witness, be faithful unto death. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the clouds sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. We're going to see a different kind of harvest here. He told us, The fields are white, labors are few, go into the harvest. And he's talking about harvesting souls for Christ. Well, now we're going to have a different kind of harvest. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. A sickle is a knife on the end of a stick. And you use it to manually cut wheat or some kind of grain. You whack it. They used to have to do all this stuff by hand. They didn't have combines. So this picture is of whacking and harvesting So then verse 17, "...then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried out with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, "...thrust in your sharp sickle and gathered the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe." So now we're going in and we're harvesting grapes, because the grapes are ready to pick. And so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So here we harvest the grapes, we put them in the wine bath, and now we're going to go stomp them. So the winepress was trampled outside the city and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So now we have the grapes of wrath. This is the grapes of wrath. We have these grapes harvested and then they're, they're mashed, and the result is this massive amount of blood. Now, nobody's confident exactly what this is talking about, but being an engineer, I did the calculation to see how feasible this was. And so if you look at how many pints of blood each person has, and then calculate 180 miles, which is what this furlongs is, and the height of a horse and 50 feet wide, which would be kind of like a river, takes about 20 million people to create that much blood. Which is kind of interesting because that's only 10% of what some people translate Revelation 9.16 to mean myriad of myriads that come to this battle. So if 10% of them have their blood flow in one place, that would create a river this size. So yes, it's very feasible to be literal. So now, very quickly, chapter 15 is real short. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete we got the seventh trumpet is where we're at. And in the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls get poured out. And so what's about to happen, what we're going to start next time is the seven bowls getting poured out. And in this, the wrath of God is complete. We'll come back to that to finish. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast. Victory, what word? Nakeo, Nakeo, yes. Over his image, over his mark, over the number of his name. Standing in the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing the song, again, no, no mindless harps, they're singing the song of Moses. And if you look at the song of Moses, it's very interesting, if you want to look it up, you can, it's Exodus 15.1. And it says, we won! <laughs> God drowned all the Egyptians and we won. But then they also sing the Song of the Lamb, which is a new song. And it's great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true all your ways. O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. You finally did it. You No longer are you just promising that, that justice will be done. You're doing justice. That's the Song of the Lamb. So they're singing those two songs. Justice has been done, we won. And verse 5, After all these things I looked, and behold, the temple, of the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues. So it's like a ceremony. I saw the doors open and these angels come marching out. And they're clothed in pure bright linen, having the chest girded with golden bands. So they're in their dress uniform. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. It looks like in a ceremony. They come up. The angels are standing there at attention. They come and hand them the bowl. They take the bowl because they're ready to go do their thing. And the seven golden bowls are full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So it's just like a place you can't go into for a while. Well, the wrath of God. Of course, we know a lot of people say the Old Testament was when God was mad and the New Testament was when He was happy. The Old Testament was God was ticked off and and kind of uh, went and killed people. And in the New Testament, it's a different thing. We had a long-haired, soft-skinned, blue-eyed Jesus that came and loved everybody. Well... You know, it says God's the same yesterday and day and forever, right? God has always been love. When He pours out His wrath, it's always for our best interest. He destroyed the earth before Noah because the earth had filled with violence. And He wanted to get rid of that and try to rebuild an earth that wasn't full of violence. He's pouring out His wrath now for specific reasons. Let's look at some of those. One is, He's destroying the destroyers. He's destroying the destroyers. How do you keep the earth from continually being destroyed? How do you keep the earth from being continually being corrupted? Well, you have to go clean all that out. Another thing he's doing is getting rid of the world system that's abusing people. That's really a good thing. God's wrath is often, and it's here as well, simply people getting what they demand. In Romans chapter 1, it says God gives us over to our own passions if we insist. It gives us over to our own lusts if we insist. Addictions. So we start with passion, becomes an addiction, and then becomes a mindset that we can't escape from. And so if you get into an addiction, you eventually get to the point where you don't think right. And I've talked to some people It says in our era, almost everybody's addicted to something. It may be media, it may be a substance, it may be materialism. And so, to get out of that, you've got to renew your mind. And and God can do that. He has the power to do that. And stop serving this thing. It's really a form of idolatry when we serve an appetite of some sort. Sometimes people say, well, will God pour out His wrath on people? You know, they seem like nice people to me. Only if they insist. Only if that's what they desire. Because God's making it clear to people how to get out of wrath. People don't want to. Remember here, all these plagues and people say, that's the Lamb of God who can escape. And yet they do not repent. And that is the heart of man. What we say is, I want out of this addiction. I want out of this negative consequence. Why won't God deliver me? Well, will you take a step of faith? No, no, no. I don't don't want to do anything. I just want the consequence to go away. I still want my idol. Well, that's not the way it works. The wages of sin is death. And if we insist on having death, we will have it. And the wrath of God is complete. I'll end with this, complete. This is the Greek word teleo. This is now we're back in verse uh, 1 of chapter 15. This is the Greek word teleo. I'm just going to go through 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 instances in Revelation where this word shows up. Revelation 10, 7, the mystery of God is teleo, finished. Revelation 11:7, 7, the testimony is finished. Revelation 15, 8, the seven plagues completed. They were finished. Revelation 17, 17, the words of God were fulfilled. Revelation 23, Satan was put in the bottom of his pit until a thousand years were finished or completed. And that's Revelation 25, same thing. thousand years finished. And then finally, Revelation 27, the thousand years expired. Finished. Complete. So the wrath of God is going to be finished. Will God's wrath go away? Yes. There will be a time when God is wrathful no more. And when will that be? When His wrath is finished. When it's done its job. Because what we're headed for is to see a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness reigns. That's the promise of Daniel 70th week that will bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, that's where we're headed. We're going to have everlasting righteousness. We're not going to need the wrath of God anymore because it's all cleaned up. When we get there, remind me, I'll show you this. We're going to see that people are going to walk along, see Satan on the side of the road and say, isn't that the guy that used to create all kinds of trouble for us? Look how low he's fallen. I think that maybe is going to be Satan's biggest torment, is that he who viewed himself as the king of all things is just going to be a miserly beggar that just can't affect anything. Awesome, huh? Let's pray. Thanks, God, for your grace and for your wrath, that you will come in and clean out all things that destroy, all things that corrupt, all things that murder all lies and deceit, and you're going to eliminate all that and bring in a world where righteousness reigns. We can't wait for that, Lord. Meanwhile, please give us the faith and courage to be great witnesses unto death. We want to be of those that you pick and say, come reign with me. Because we know our teleo, our fulfillment is born in that, is vested in that, because you have made us to do that. And when we learn to serve... Learn to obey so that we can be faithful. Then in your in your work, you've promised us you're going to give us this greater work. This, if we're faithful in small things, you'll give us great things. And we know that in that, the maximum fulfillment comes. Lord, help us have the faith to see and endure so we can be like these patients of the saints, this endurance of the saints that do not fear death, any kind of death. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs>